All right. Acts chapter 9. Let me just switch over here. We're going to begin reading uh, in verse uh, 10 of chapter 9. We're going to read all the way through verse 31. Again, this account as we move through the process of Saul's conversion. Acts chapter 9, beginning verse 10 through verse 31, reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word declares, Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive a sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he rose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And has he come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and, as, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Last week we looked... And Ananias, in, as an agent within God's working in Saul, to continue the process of his conversion. We often, as we said last week, talk about him being saved on the road to Damascus, but that really isn't accurate. He was confronted with Christ on the road to Damascus, but we don't find him really receiving the evidence of faith in Christ until we, three days later, in Damascus, and that was through the agent that God used. His name was Ananias. And Ananias, of course, answered God a little differently than Saul did. Saul says, who are you, Lord? And Ananias says, here I am, Lord. 
That doesn't mean he didn't have some misgivings about his assignment. His assignment was a, a risky one. From Ananias' perspective, um, you're going to have to go talk to the man who is there to arrest you. Uh, you're going to go right into the lion's den, and you're going to go right down this street. You're going to go right to this house. He's waiting for you, and he's praying. And, of course, Ananias tries to remind God or, or illuminate God to who this man is that he wants him to go meet. God already knows, but God knows more than the past. God has a future. And that's what we talked about last week, that God has a future. And if that's what sustains and, and brings us uh, to ministry is that recognition that uh, God has a future. He has a future for us. He has a future for all men. And one aspect of that future is that men hear the gospel. That they be confronted with that opportunity to receive or reject Christ. And whether that uh, brings us to a point of risk-taking like Stephen that culminates in a death of stoning, or whether it takes us into the mouth of the lion's den, so to speak, confronts a sworn enemy of Christ and has him come to Christ and become my brother in Christ, uh, or anyone in between. We are motivated to ministry by the understanding that God is a future. And God communicates that to Ananias. He says, listen, I have a future for this man. You know his past. I know what is coming. And that's essentially what drives ministry, is that God knows how people are going to respond, how he's going to use them, but ultimately the future that really drives us and sustains us in ministry is the knowledge that God has a future for us as well. And so Ananias is obedient. And Saul receives him, receives the Holy Spirit, receives baptism. We saw all of that uh, come together, and then finally he also received food, because remember, for three days not only was he blind, he was also in prayer and fasting, not eating nor drinking for three days. And so he received the sustenance, and he spent some days, we find, with the disciples of Damascus. And we want to move now into verse 20 and following to see the results of this continuing process of Saul's full conversion. Before we do so, let's go to Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the opportunity to look in your word, and we pray that your spirit might guide it, might direct it, that it might be uh, your truth, and that it might uh, be protected from error or opinions, and that we might uh, receive it as such with uh, the wisdom that is from above. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Saul does uh, a 180, kind of. The 180, though, is not in his personality. And I want to just put that on record. We're not talking about him changing his personality type. Uh, that's really not what the gospel is all about. Um, and that's why it's fascinating to read different writers of Scripture and see how their own creativity, their own personality comes through the writing, and uh, in fact, in seminary we are tested on that to tell if we to just read a passage and know which author wrote it. Um, I, I always assumed that they figured we didn't have the whole Bible memorized to be able to tell them 
who the author was of certain passages, um, but to just be able to recognize their personality type that came through in their writing, even as God was carrying them along by the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul's personality is not going to change. He was a, a uh, strong and compelled individual who, who wanted to put feet to his faith, um, to his beliefs, that he wanted to live them out. He wanted to be super consistent. He wanted to be on fire. He was that for Judaism, and he's going to be exactly that for Christianity. The guy that, that, that personality that drove him to take the leadership and the persecution of Christians is going to be the same personality that's going to pick up the ball and going to lead the way in the dissemination of Christianity across the Roman Empire. God is not about making um, you into a different personality. Uh, when I was uh, working with a mission board and one of the things that always keeps coming through, and I know I've shared this probably in the past with you, um, was they used to take personality inventories. And uh, boy, those are dangerous things. Don't ever take, anyone throws one of those at you, just kind of laugh and just mark everything A, see what happens. I don't know. Um, they take personality inventories, and they're saying, and they would bring men in, and, and I was very much against all of this, and I was one of the interviewers, um, and they would give them these, and they would take these personality inventories and say, you don't have a church planter's personality. And um, I never did this in front of the interviewee, but immediately after every interview, I'd say, what is a personality for a church planter? Which one is it? Why do you keep saying this to people? Um, God uses every personality. And we're going to see some very interesting, different personalities that God uses. In fact, two of them are almost opposites. And God used them powerfully that we're going to investigate this morning. And so Saul isn't going to be transformed in his personality, but rather in the commitment of how he is going to employ who he is and uh, in righteousness now. It's going to be for Christ and it's going to be in righteousness. But I want you to understand Saul's prior commitments demonstrate his character and the, and the quality of it. It was totally misplaced um, and he was engrossed in a sin because he refused to see God in the events transpiring around him in the life of Christ uh, and the, all that happened in the Passion Week and the Resurrection, uh, all that happened in the early church and Pentecost. Saul was reacting against all of that. He was stubborn in it. But he is going to now submit that personality to Christ. And rather than saying that there's a certain personality that's going to be used of God more than others, uh, I want to just share with you that whatever personality you have, um, it is, the question isn't which one do you have, the question is, is it fully surrendered to God? That's the kind of personality God can use. <laughs> one that's fully surrendered to Him. Whether it's the quiet, behind-the-scenes kind of person, whether it's the courageous, bold, out-there-in-front uh, kind of personality, or anywhere in between, uh, the question isn't where you fit. The question is, are you surrendered in who you are to Christ? And it is those individuals that God uses. And so we come to Saul's conversion, and we see uh, the bright light experience, and that's... Uh, 
exciting. But remember, uh, Christ doesn't tell him how to receive him. He doesn't tell him what to do, uh, except to just go to Damascus and wait. Someone's going to come. His name's Ananias, and he'll he'll uh, take care of this. Because still to this day, in this age, there is one plan of God to reach men. And that is for his believers to be his ambassadors. There's no plan B. There is no secondary instrument. Even Christ himself doesn't violate uh, that principle that we have the command to go and make disciples and to baptize them and to teach them. Uh, that, that is the expectation of God still to this age. That is his, his uh, marketing strategy. That's it. So Paul, I'm sorry, so Saul, he hasn't been renamed yet, so we're gonna, I'm going to really stick to Saul here. Saul has uh, received Christ. He's spent a little bit of time with the disciples. He's well trained in the scriptures, but now a whole new light has come upon them, and he is anxious. He is, he is, he is excited about the opportunity to go in and have interchange with men of his own faith. He's former faith of the Jewish synagogues. That's so why he's going to go walking right in the synagogues and we find immediately in verse 20, he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. You see, it wasn't that, that there was, that the apostles, that the preachers that he heard prior were manipulating and, and, and God's word and making it say things it didn't mean. Um, that wasn't the issue. The issue was that Saul didn't want to believe it. We read Stephen's sermon. We studied it. Saul heard that message. He, he was convinced, and yet he didn't want to believe it. When confronted with the truth, he rejected it. He didn't want it because of the ramifications that it meant for his life. Well, now those ramifications will be played out, and so he easily goes into the synagogues and is able convincingly to demonstrate, first of all, that the Messiah, whoever he is, that's the Christ, That's the first thing he's going to prove to the Jews. That the Messiah, the Christ, is the Son of God. That the Messiah is God incarnate. Whoever the Messiah is, I want you to notice that we haven't been introduced to the name yet. He's just going in there and the first step that he's engaging with people who have this heritage, the, the Jewish faith, is that let's just show from the Old Testament that the Christ, the Messiah... The one we're looking for is going to be the Son of God. He is going to be God incarnate. And that's the first proof that he presses upon his Jewish brethren. Then he's going to move from that right into Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, as we look down in verse 22. So we have the introduction of his message. We have what its uh, intended conclusion was in that... Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Jerusalem, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. This is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. He's the one. And so first of all, I want to prove to you that the Messiah that we're looking for, that all of Israel is is desiring after this one prophet that Moses said would come after him, that one that we're supposed to listen to, uh, that Stephen told everyone about, that prophet uh, had to be the Son of God, had to be God incarnate. And that Jesus Christ filled that role. And here's the proof. 
And this isn't just some backwoods, hillbilly synagogue. This is a major synagogue in Damascus. And he confounds them. The Jews there have no toehold against him. We immediately see Paul, Saul, directing all of his training, all of that personality that he brought to bear against Christ, brought it to bear for Christ, the forcefulness of his arguments. And he just kept getting stronger and stronger. And we're not talking about months and years here. We're talking about days. Verse 23 goes on and says, after many days were passed, that as the period prolonged and the testimony grew stronger, that the opposition, uh, rather than melting to the power of his presentation of his truth did exactly what he did back in Jerusalem and stiffened against it because they recognized what it required of them. And so they plotted against him. And of course, he's going to have to escape from them. He heads to Jerusalem. We're going to see in a little bit. He's going to have to escape from Jerusalem, go to Caesarea, and then finally go all the way back to his hometown, Tarsus. What does all this paint for us in terms of the process of Saul's conversion. We saw that the conversion began several weeks ago with his confrontation with Christ. And that everyone must be confronted with Christ at some point. Saul had already been confronted multiple times. Christ alludes to that. You have been kicking against my goads. I've been goading you to faith. I've been poking you. You have been not just ignoring them, you've been kicking against them. So he's been confronted with the truth of Christ, we know on one particular occasion with Stephen. He's then now confronted with his sin, that he's been rejecting the one true and living God. And for three days he has to sit in blindness and realize that without Christ he is nothing. And he communicates that to us in books like Corinthians and Galatians and Philippians where he talks about without Christ, I'm nothing. I'm crucified. I'm not living anymore. It's Christ living in me. Everything I brought to the table, I had to count as garbage, as dung, manure, compared to the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. And so for three days, he had to sit there and and consider his condition and let the weight of his own sin and rebellion and rejection of the truth just lower him. That he might be ready to receive a servant of God. We looked last week at Ananias' participation in this process of his conversion where he comes in to a man who has been prepared, readied for the gospel, is is expecting it, is anticipating his arrival and how exciting that is to be able to go and minister in that kind of a setting when you walk in and, and God has been at work well before you ever arrived in that person's life and they are anxious to receive what you have to offer. Sometimes it happens that way. We saw him receiving his sight 
being filled with the Holy Spirit. And to most of us, we would end the chapter right there. We would put the spiritual notch on our belt. We would count them up. We'd put them on the register. We would uh, say, there's another one that's destined for heaven. We'd take them to 1 John 5 and, and, and share with them this is that they can know that they are a child of God, ignoring all of 1 John 1, 2, 3, and 4. But the Bible doesn't. One of the things the Bible calls for in the process of our salvation is the evidence, the fruit of repentance. The Bible refers to it as that. That there's evidence, there is, there's recognizable, tangible things that we can see and feel and hear with our senses that give proof to the reality of God's work in our life. Rather than divorcing that as something separate from your conversion, I would contend with you that it is an integral part of your conversion experience. Saul doesn't leave this part out of his testimony to the kings later on in Acts. He says, I was obedient to the heavenly vision. And obedience uh, to God's calling in his life is the evidence, it's the proof, it's the works that back up his profession of faith. And it is an aspect of salvation that we have um, disconnected from a little bit. And I know why. And the reason why is understandable. Um, We come out of a period of time where Everything was about the law and works and and perhaps in your faith traditions how you came to Christ was in that through that same pathway where it's all about fulfilling these requirements that you do all these certain actions whether half-hearted or whole-hearted it's just important that you do them and uh, and that somehow you're trying to appease God or to uh, work your way to God and. And certainly in the Reformation, we have this reaction against this. And, and, and Luther and Calvin's statements that it is by grace through faith, sola fide, sola gracia, faith alone, grace alone. And, and almost in a knee-jerk reaction, we pull away and we don't want to acknowledge that place of works in our Christian experience anymore, in our Christian testimony. And that's a mistake, Yes, the Bible says, by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And in its coming into our life, it, that, that is essential, that is, that is necessary, that we recognize that we bring nothing to the table of salvation except sin. This is what we bring. But it cannot be all that we pick up from the table is simply deliverance from sin there must be something more substantial than that and that's what calls us to something more that if we've really come to the table not only is it that we have given up sin and repented of it but that we have picked up something else off that table that god brought 
And he didn't just bring forgiveness there, did he? He brought righteousness there. The righteousness of Christ. And he wants us certainly to repent of our sin and leave our sin at the cross. But oh, that we would pick up what he brings there. And if you haven't picked this up, I would contend that you haven't really visited the table of God's salvation. You've got to pick up his righteousness. There should be fruit. There should be evidence. There should be proof. And for some, that, that, that's somewhat long in coming. And, and I would contend that they've been in process that whole time. And I fear that for many in the Western church, and why I don't preach as strongly as many of you want me to preach uh, eternal security, the reason I don't preach that is because I think most American Christians are in process and haven't come to 1 John 5 because they haven't lived 1 John 1, 2, 3, and 4. And we're going to see that here in a little bit very quickly. But Paul, Saul immediately starts producing that kind of fruit that I am going to be obedient to God now. I'm not just going to skate out of here feeling relieved that I got rid of all my sin. No, that's only half. And if the real thing happened in your life there that day, that not only have you put down your sin, but you have picked up the righteousness of Christ and you're going to live according to it, by it, and for it. Not a day, not a month, not a year, not a decade, but the balance of your days. And he began preaching Christ immediately, increasing. When he got driven out of one town, he went to another. Now here's a deal. You go to church and they don't want you to come in. <laughs> okay? Okay? They're a little nervous about letting you into church. In fact, they're hiding from you. That's how Saul arrived in Jerusalem. Nobody sent him an invitation to the outreach tent meetings. Nobody sent him an invitation to Sunday school. Nobody sent him an invitation to the prophecy conferences. Nobody sent him any of that. They didn't really want him there. Um, he's the guy to avoid. And it says that the, he tried to join up with them and <laughs> they didn't want him. <laughs> Just try joining with us. We won't take you. They're afraid of him. Yet he persisted. He was going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This was unmistakable. This was unchangeable in his life. He had come to know Christ. He would serve him, whether he was encouraged by his fellow saints or not. Whether he faced opposition in the world that wanted to kill him or not. None of those things were relevant. He would serve the Lord. The fact is that most of us are pretty panty-waste when it comes to Christianity. That we'll only be sustained in it if we get our way, if everything goes well for us, if, you know, if, if people like me, if they'll encourage me, if, if they appreciate me, I'll keep preaching.
I'm not going to do that ministry anymore. People just didn't appreciate me. You didn't come to the right table and pick up the right thing from that table from God. We don't minister, we don't preach, we don't teach, we don't serve God for the appreciation of men for our own interests. Here, Saul is going to serve the living Christ regardless of whether who hunted him, regardless of who hid from him. Whether it be his fellow Jews, whether it be Gentiles, whether it be the Christians. And let me make it very clear that you're going to be disappointed in every field if your hope and trust for the sustenance, the continuation of your faith is dependent upon any of those groups. If you are depending upon the world receiving you, because look at the great change, and they're just going to say, wow, you know, we want Christ too. Um, If that's what it takes to sustain you, you're going to be gravely disappointed, and you're not going to serve God very long. If you want religious folk to just uh, bend their will to your uh, strong and um, inescapable logic, you're going to be disappointed. If you're going to serve him because God's people are applauding you all along the way and helping you out, you're going to be disappointed. It seems that the disciples' favorite thing to do with Paul is to help him out of town. (laughs) We'll help you out the window, get you out of town. We'll send you off to Caesarea and then off to Tarsus. We'll We'll help you get you out of town. You see, faith evidence, the works that we're talking about, are not those necessarily that are applauded by men, but in fact that are applauded by God. That God has called us to that level of obedience that, is, that makes everything else that, is, that normally motivates men irrelevant. That I'm serving God singularly at the disposal of God. That He can use me and use me up to His glory and I freely give Him that. I'll serve him faithfully the balance of my days. Though men outside kill me and though the disciples inside the church are afraid of me, avoid me, escort me out. I will serve the Lord. This needs to be our drive. This is the evidence. This is fruit that is is, uh, abounding. Fruit that lasts is the way Christ uses it in in John 15. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will bring forth fruit, fruit that remains, that lasts, that endures. And you have heard me instruct you over and over again that real faith is not um, just there on your knees at the cross. It is an enduring faith that lasts until Christ comes or you go to him. That that is salvific faith. That there are many in our age that have faith in religion but not in Christ. And their works are evidence of that. And when they get frustrated, they abandon it. 
because ultimately it wasn't in Christ to begin with. For Saul, it didn't matter whether he got any pats on the back, whether he got any encouragement at all, he was going to serve the Lord. But in the midst of all of this, oh, let me back up one more step. There was one other. So the first one is his evidence was he was obedient. The proof of his faith. And that's going to be true the rest of his days. Not just these first days. But the first days are important because they set a, a pattern for his life. The second evidence that I think is lacking in our churches and why I don't preach eternal security um, is persecution. Opposition. What does it cost you to be a believer? That's my question. What does it cost you? When has it been tested? When has it really come down to the fact that you need to choose between Christ and these other things that used to be precious to you? Whether those are things, whether that's position, power, people, whatever it is, when has it really cost you? And my fearfulness and why I, I seldom emphasize eternal security to people is because seldom is their faith well tested here in this culture and seldom do I find people passing that test when it does confront them. My contention is from the soil and the seed and the sower parable is that the real deal isn't really proven until it has to endure a hot sun with no rain. Are your roots established? Are they deep enough to endure? And the fact is that most Christians in our culture have never really encountered a hot sun to really test whether their faith is genuinely rooted in Christ or not. In other cultures, I would be extremely quick to teach eternal security because in their cultures, as soon as they receive Christ as their Savior and Lord, there is an immediate ramification for them. There is an immediate heat that is placed in their lives where family are ready to kill them, where they lose everything just to claim Christ. And in those contexts, I would be right there saying, Father's holding you. You're safe. Because they've paid the price, they've paid it quickly, and they've paid it willingly. And they have continued on. Saul here has not only the fruit of salvation, evidence life, that, that those works that are necessary as this process, but also he has that hot sun coming on him. He's just a few days old in Christ, and already it's going to be tested, not once, not twice, but over and over again. The heat is going to come on to examine, are you well-rooted? Is your faith genuine, or is it just the shallow stuff that, that just gets ripped up or burned up with the slightest opposition? The slightest temptation comes your way, boom, you're gone. The slightest discouragement comes and I'm out of here. The slightest opposition comes and you cave. 
Don't you dare claim that faith on the day of Christ because it will not save you. (laughs) And that's why I don't preach it here much. Not because I don't believe it, but because in our own experiences, we have seldom encountered it. And I haven't, can't say that across the board for everyone. But the, it comes down to it. When has anyone hunted you down to kill you because you're a child of God? When has it ever cost you that kind of risk? And so because Saul has demonstrated fruit of repentance, that he's going to obey the heavenly vision. He's going to obey God from the get-go with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then secondly, his faith was tested. Are you willing to put it all on the line for Christ and serve him no matter what? He had that one-two punch right off at the beginning. And you could almost imagine him wandering around Jerusalem and say, well, I don't belong there, and these people won't let me belong there. And, and you could almost imagine him cowering off into in, oblivion, and, and maybe he was almost heading that way. Kind of doubt it, but certainly there was discouragement there. I'm not saying that Paul was never discouraged. He says he was from time to time. But it did not damage his commitment to Christ. It never brought that into question. And right in the midst of all of this, where he is demonstrating his commitment to Christ by being obedient and demonstrating that I am willing to suffer anything and everything from those who hate Christ, I am willing to fill up the sufferings of Christ in my body even as he was showing all of that to God's people, they were shrinking away from him until one guy shows up on the scene. We've already met this guy here in Acts. His name was Joseph, but you know him, and really he only goes by his nickname the most rest of the book of Acts, and that is Barnabas. Bar simply means son of, Navas, the encourager. Son of encouragement. That's his nickname. We know what he, the nature of this man, we have met him, of how he gave to the church. He earned his nickname well before Saul showed up, but it was just like his nature his personality type, to go after a guy like Saul. He heard the testimony. Not just from Saul, but he heard what happened up in Damascus. That word got down. And so Bar-Nabas takes the risk. Another one like Ananias, who is willing to serve God. We don't ever see what Ananias did. The rest of the scriptures, he comes up once or twice. We don't have a lot of record of what he accomplished for God. Um, Different kind of personality than Saul, but used of God nonetheless. Here comes Barnabas, and a a whole other kind of personality. In fact, that's going to cause some problems. There's going to be a point of contention between uh, a Paul and Barnabas with regard to um, how many second chances do we give people? 
That's going to come out. So there's going to be conflict there. Um, they have some personality differences, don't they? Are they both used of God? Absolutely. Because they're fully surrendered to God. And here, I want you to put in your mind who the people in Jerusalem are that are shying away from Saul. Their names are Peter, John, James, Sons of Thunder. Remember those guys? That was their nickname. Bar, whatever Thunder is. Sons of Thunder. Everyone's kind of steering clear of this Saul guy. Oh, we've heard the rumors, but you never know. Yes, you can know. That's what James writes in his book. You can know. You can know if someone's faith is genuine or not, providing there's fruit, there's evidence, there's works, there's obedience, and providing that they are enduring. And that's why James says, don't count it bad when you fall into trials. Right? We all count that as, oh boy. In fact, we have some preachers out there saying if you have trials in your life that you must have sinned against God. Wrong. Count it all joy. God's giving you an opportunity to evidence that your faith is real and genuine and deep, rooted, eternal. Count it a joy when you get a chance to have your faith really tested where it's going to cost you something to say, I'm a Christian. Saul's done all of that, and still they shirked away. There was proof that this was a genuine child of God they were dealing with, and yet they were afraid of him. They didn't believe it, even though they had all the evidence there. What more could Saul do? Well, one man... He didn't believe in Saul. He believed the evidence. He believed the proof. And he was willing to take that risk. And he goes and meets with Saul. And says, and, and, and I love how the Bible talks about Barnabas with relationship to Saul. Um, he's always active. And Saul is always passive. So here it says, Barnabas went and took him. I always wondered where he took him from. Where he was at. I'm taking you. Come on. You're coming with me. Um, and brought him to the apostles. He says, they're all hiding from you, but I know where they're hiding. Let's go. I'm taking you. We're going to take them. And here, apostles, here's the guy you're afraid of. And you just wonder how many of the apostles were looking over their shoulders to see if there's a bunch of temple soldiers following them. But no, they shared the whole testimony. They responded, and they received them. And then... He did something pretty incredible. It says in verse 28, remember this is where he was sent from with papers to arrest people in Damascus. In verse 20 it says, He is with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly. He was not afraid of them. They were afraid of him. He, he unabashedly associated with these men that he knew the religious leaders of Israel were watching, hunting, and wanting to take out one by one. He knew. He knew the commitment of the enemy, and he knew that in associating with them, he would be associated immediately with that, and he was glad to do it. Glad to associate with these in this very public setting. Going in, coming out, temple, 
around town, didn't matter. And in fact, he's going to even make a beeline to guess where? Right to the group that cruci- or that, cruci- that stoned Stephen. He goes right to those Hellenists. He's going to give them the message again, just like Stephen did. Right back to that same group of Greek-speaking Jews. That they would hear it again. That they would see the power of Jesus Christ, what he can transform you into. All the evidence was there. It would be borne out. He had the works that accompanied salvation and he endured persecution, opposition. And this is the culmination of his salvific event. This is when his salvation, I'm con- in my mind and in my interaction with him, would be complete. Not only is there the high event, the, the emotional excitement and the, and the supernatural things going on there that we can point to and the wow event, but there was the daily grind of standing for Christ and obeying Him every single day. And without that, I would contend with you, you haven't come to the right table of salvation you might have thought you dropped something off, but it wasn't the table of God's salvation because to walk away from that one, you've got to pick up the righteousness of Christ and bring it into your life. If that's not real, then nothing else is. Your quote-unquote forgiveness is, is imaginary. There are no blank slates in the church. That is, that God just comes and erases all your sin and that you're blank. There are no such things in the church. For as he is erasing with one hand, he is writing his righteousness with the other. And there should be evidence. And Saul had it in his life. He he demonstrated his willingness to obey and to endure. And in the midst of the struggles that it takes to do that, even as the church wonders, a guy named Barnabas comes along who's there to encourage you. Now, in my personality, I am probably more willing to associate with Saul's person than Barnabas' personality. Okay, I'm just the guy that says, just obey or pow. Um, I'm not the guy that said, come along, put my arm around you and, and say, let's just muddle through this together, brother. I'm just not going to do that. I'm the guy that's going to kick you in the pants. That's just who I am. Um, and I try to do it in love and gentleness because God's word calls me to that. Um, and, and if you really knew what I, <laughs> my kids do, uh, <laughs> what I'd like to do, then I restrain myself really well. Um, but we need the Barnabases in ministry too. One isn't better than the other. They are necessary. I think it's great that when they're praying there, um, the five guys are praying there, that God says, I'll take, I'll take uh, that guy 
and that guy. And they're about as far from each other personality-wise as you can get. I'll take the son of encouragement with this bold preaching man. With this logician that can just go in there and, and, and prove things with the Bible and, and with, with engaging people. I'm going to take those two guys. That's my first missionary team. Now you tell me which one is a church planning personality. Which one is a missions personality. Which one is an evangelist. They both are. And just as much as God used Ananias to bring Saul to Christ, God used Barnabas to bring Saul into the completion by bringing him into the church. We need the Ananiases that will boldly come to God and say, here I am, and we'll go right into the lion's den and, and take a guy and say, you're coming to Christ now. Let's get this done and baptized. And we need the Barnabases that will come in and say, I know everybody else is kind of weary of you, but let's go introduce you anyway. Now, he doesn't do this foolheartedly. He doesn't do this as a manner that overlooks something. He has seen proof in Saul's life that his faith is real. And he wants to fan that. By the way, the next time Saul needs to be found, guess who goes and gets him? Barnabas. And that time it says he had to go over there and seek Saul. He had to go turn over every rock to find the guy in Tarsus. This is a man that doesn't give up on people. This is a man that sees someone living for God and is going to gather around him and support him and challenge him and encourage him. That's what the word means, to add courage to him. Saul had courage, but here is one who could come and add courage to him in times when there is opposition that seemed insurmountable, in times when even the church was letting him down and they weren't opening their arms to him. Here comes Barnabas. To say, no, I see that God's at work in your life. And it's okay that no one appreciates it. We're not doing it for that anyway. Um, Let's get you involved. Let's get you in the ministry. And praise the Lord for the Barnabases. As well as the Ananiases. Here I am, Lord. Got some doubts about your assignment, but I'll obey. I'll obey. The Barnabases, I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to see the potential that God has, the future God has in this man. I'm going to see the evidence of his faith in his life, and I'm going to respond by simply lifting him up and and adding courage to him to continue in his faith. And we also need that third servant, those Saul's, that get out there and smash mouth evangelism in your face. With complete boldness. We need those. I'm not that either, by the way. Some of you think I am, but I'm really not. I'm probably more like the Ananias. Oh, here I am, but are you sure? (laughs) We need these people. We need each one that God's put in the church to minister. 
And the only way to do that, first of all, you need to have the real faith. And it's not just about, I prayed this prayer and I got baptized. It's about, have I picked up the righteousness of Christ and brought into my life and been obedient to it? And am I willing to do that no matter the cost, whether it be from without the church or from within the church? No matter the disappointments, no matter the opposition, I will serve the Lord. Well, that's the evidence of genuine faith. Now, fully surrender who you are to Christ, service. And he'll use you. Not like he'll use me, because you're not like me. He'll use you if we are fully surrendered to him. And how wondrous to see three examples so different from each other, used of God to build the church. And I don't think it's a mistake that when we get to verse 31, it says, the churches in all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. That is built up. They are strengthened. And they were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they were multiplied. When a church, first of all, is filled with genuine believers who are proving it every day, who are also surrendered to full service to God no matter what, this will be the condition of that church. They'll be multiplied. They'll be comforted by the Spirit. They'll be walking in the fear of the Lord. And they will be strengthened. And they will be at peace. If not with the world, at least with God and each other. This is God's expectation. This is His promise. This is His future for the church. And He uses instruments like these. And there is nothing particular about these men. They are very different. But what they had in common was genuine faith in God, in Christ Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And complete surrender of who they were to His service. And that crosses all personality traits. The question isn't, can you be who I am? The question is, can you be who God wants you to be for his glory? Christ Jesus' 